pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for the goodness of your grace, for the beauty of Jesus Christ that is revealed to us by the power of your Holy Spirit as you cause us to obey your commands. We pray that you would work mightily against our flesh as our flesh desires to pursue its own passions. And you tell us to be filled with your spirit so that we would not gratify the desires of the flesh. So fill us with your spirit. We pray, Lord, that in this place you would open the floodgates of your Holy Spirit to consume us and to surround us and to cover us and to fill us in a way that is so profoundly glorious that your word and your gospel and your power would be magnified this morning through the truth of your word and who you are. So let your body and let your people make much of you this morning as we examine and study and understand and teach your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, it is helpful to us all to do a quick overview of the first two chapters in 1 Timothy so that we can understand chapter 3 within its immediate context. So... Quick review. Chapter 1, Paul addresses what is foundational to the church, sound doctrine, which is required so that the church can stand on the truth as they face various challenges that come with following Jesus. And having sound doctrine isn't only so that the church can withstand the difficulties of following Christ. Having sound doctrine primarily is about knowing who God is. The importance of having sound doctrine in the church is that it comes from the Word of God, which is our only source of truth. And from the Word of God, we garner sound truths that God teaches us. And the purpose of that, ultimately, is to magnify or, in a sense, open up our eyes or to zoom in on the glory of who God is. So what sound doctrine does is it reveals to us the nature of God. So even if sound doctrine is not specifically about God, say a sound doctrine, you know, uh, the doctrines uh, about obedience, you know, we're to obey certain, you know, all these commands in Scripture. Uh, well, those commands themselves reveal to us the nature of God. So all of sound doctrine is intended to show us who God is, to, to allow our eyes and our minds to expand as we try to grasp the infinite nature of God. And so sound doctrine doesn't just protect us, it enriches us. Paul then follows sound doctrine in chapter 1 by clarifying the gospel uh, near the end of chapter 1 and then communicates to us how to deal with the ways uh, that the gospel and sound doctrine may be abused or misused. So with the foundation of truth established under the feet of the church, upon that foundation in chapter 2, Paul begins to build order in the church for when it gathers. And that order includes the importance of prayer and the word being present in corporate worship. So at this point in the text, in in 1 Timothy, the church has a solid foundation of sound doctrine and the gospel that is established upon the gathering of God's people who pray and exalt the gospel through the word together. And then Paul moves into more specific clarifications about the structure of roles in the gathering of God's people when he gets to chapter 2. That men and women each have their unique roles in the gathering 
for worship as well as in the structure of church leadership. It is from those roles that Paul now, in chapter 3, dives into the leading role of eldership for the church so that the body of Christ knows what they should expect from their elders and also so that the body of Christ only affirms certain men who satisfy these qualifications for eldership. So today we'll look at the introduction to this office of elder, and then over the next two weeks we'll examine each of the qualifications of eldership so that we understand what they all mean. So we're in verse 1, and Paul writes, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. It's important to understand the historical situation here. Uh, Paul is not telling Timothy to establish eldership in the church. And we know this because Paul had already established eldership in the church in Ephesus. A year after leaving Ephesus and before writing this letter, Paul had called the elders of Ephesus to meet with him at Miletus in Acts 20. So we know the elders already are established there. So knowing that helps us kind of narrow down Paul's motivation for writing to Timothy about this subject. And so what this does for us is, one, it verifies that Paul considers this an important role. That it's already established, but he still needs to communicate all the details about the role. And then we know it's important also because in, chapter th- or in this verse, verse 1, Paul calls it a noble task. So there's an elevation to this role that Paul is going to focus on. And the second thing is, Paul's main concern for Timothy is not that he establishes eldership, but that he maintains this type of leadership by following what Paul offers here in chapter 3 as the requirements and qualifications of those serving the church as shepherds. These standards for eldership are important to clarify because Paul understands that these specific elders in Ephesus that that he already trusts to lead the church will not live forever. Obviously, there needs to be some sort of standard set for the future, so there's these guidelines for the future that Paul establishes in this text for the right men to be called to preserve the purity of the gospel and sound doctrine through the unity of the Spirit and the body of Christ. Now, by Paul writing the words, the saying is trustworthy, um, you might look at this, in, maybe I'm projecting my initial thoughts onto you, maybe you don't think this way, but I did when I first read this, I remember thinking this, uh, the saying is trustworthy kind of makes you believe that there's some like common phrase circulating around their culture and that common phrase would be what he says in verse 1. Uh, you see that in scripture. It happens sometimes where the authors of scripture will kind of quote a common uh, saying or like old wives tale or something and then use it to kind of make their point to kind of maybe connect or you uh, maybe draw a connection with the audience or something. Um, but that's not actually what's happening here. Um, There's no historical or archaeological or biblical evidence that suggests that this is a common phrase at the time. So what I think Paul means is that what he is about to say is a statement that he himself believes in. He's validating his own statement, saying, what I'm about to tell you is a trustworthy saying. This is an important reality, and, and, and he knows this to be true, and we know he knows it to be true because Paul calls it a noble task. And he'll go on to describe the high parameters for this office, thus making it noble simply by its excellent standard. 
So the trustworthy saying is this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the term overseer is one of a few other Greek words that were used in the New Testament to describe this office. And those other Greek words are translated into English as elder, bishop, pastor, and then here we have overseer. Um, And so all of these titles in the New Testament are used interchangeably or synonymously with one another to refer to this exact office that we call elder. They're called overseer in Scripture due to the work that is to be done. There is actual, an actual physical presence of the overseer in the life of the body. So he's overseen in a physical sense. The word overseer kind of casts a, a physical like presence over the congregation that the, that the overseer or the elder is involved in the life of the people, seeing what they do and giving oversight into those things. And they are called elder in scripture in consideration of the dignity that they are due for their role. You know, we've all heard growing up like, you know, respect your elders. That was, that's common to us today. It was common to them back then as well, even more so common to them that they would respect their elders. When I say elders, I mean in terms of age, respect those who have been through life more than you because of what they've been through. And so they get this title of elder for the dignity that is due for their role. We should respect our elders and, and, and not just in life, but respect the elders of the church. So the man who fills this role is described by Paul as having two operations within himself. So we see this out of two words that come from this text. So in verse 1, Paul uses two words. One word is aspires. And the other word is desires. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And Paul says that he aspires to the office and that he desires this noble task. And the word aspires means to reach out after. And it describes the external action of pursuing this office, which can be expressed in many different ways, either by praying about it or seeking wisdom concerning this aspiration, or by taking the current elder, or, or I'm sorry, talking to the current elder, elders about it, or any other kind of various or different external actions that reveal his motivation to become an elder. So there's an aspiration that is shown externally as he reaches for that position. And the second word is desire. And this word reveals the internal motivation of a man that in his heart and in his mind he is likely given by the Spirit an internal passion and drive to consider himself for this role in the church. So with these two thoughts together, the man that Paul is describing is one who outwardly pursues becoming an overseer because he is internally motivated to fulfill that role. Now, That does not mean that this man who externally pursues eldership from his internal desire to fill that role will actually become an elder. These words in verse 1 are not the qualifications for elder. Verse 1 simply shows us what is moving and motivating the man who puts himself forward for this role. It also shows us that other people's perspective And who should be an elder does not qualify someone for eldership. 
The man who becomes an elder should have his external action toward eldership that is driven by his internal desire to preserve the purity and the beauty of the gospel and of sound doctrine. If that man's desires were the only qualification, then churches would be filled with well-intentioned, unqualified men leading them. So, to avoid such a problem, Paul will go on in chapter 3, starting in verse 2, and will give us a list of qualifications for overseer or elder. And then that list becomes the qualifying standard for the man who might have an internal and external desire for eldership. He then has to go through the uh, examination process of chapter 3, verses 2 through 7. We'll get into those qualifications next week, uh, but it is important to know that before we explore the qualifications themselves, we must see what is active within the heart and mind of this man. This is an important part of it. He desires this role. I mean, can you imagine, like, being a child and your parents say, well, maybe some of you have heard this from your parents when you were a child, and if so, I'm sorry, because you shouldn't have, but imagine being a child and your parent says, oh, I hate being your parent. <laughs> oh, I wish you weren't my child. You imagine the destruction that does to the heart and the mind of a child? That's what it's like to be in a church that has an elder that doesn't want to be your elder or doesn't want to fill that role. His desire for that role is a love for the church and should come from a love for the church and for the body and a love for sound doctrine and a desire to protect the purity of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus Christ displayed in the body of Jesus Christ. That should be the elder's desire, his passion. He should know the word of God. He should love the word of God. He should pursue the word of God. He should be a man of prayer. He should be a man of power and strength, a man of humility and great patience. And we all know, as we, as I, if I were to continue to go on and on describing this man, you're like, you're describing Jesus, and none of us are him. So who qualifies? And that's a very honest and real question. Who qualifies? And we'll talk about that more next week, but it is so important that we understand that the elder wants to do these things. Now, before digging into the qualifications, it's also important to understand a few other things, like what the elder or the overseer or bishop or pastor, whatever you call them, what they're to do. It would take much longer than the time that we have to describe the entirety of the role and responsibility of elder. There are entire collections of books written on the subject of church leadership, and so I'm just going to give you a much more brief description of five of the tasks of the elder and they are five important tasks and I wouldn't even necessarily say they're the five most important tasks but they are five very important things that elders do so if any men here are sitting here going is God calling me to be an elder this is what you are to do this is part of the calling so I'll give you five things number one they are to rule. As Paul says in chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule. Now the word rule in our current culture kind of has like a 
kind of comes off a little too authoritarian. So we might use a word like lead. Either way, they are rulers and leaders of the body. That's the first thing. The second thing, the second task of the elder is they are to preach and teach. As Paul also says in chapter 5, verse 17, so it's the same verse. He says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we'll discuss what double honor means when we get to that text. But for now, just see that the role of elder is one of teaching the church. And what they're teaching the church are the very sound doctrines to which Paul has encouraged us to adhere already. And what you'll notice here is it says, uh, you can kinda, it kind of seems like Paul is displaying two types of elders. You know, let the elders who rule, and then he goes on and says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And it kind of casts this idea that there's elders, and then there's elders who teach and preach. As if they're separate, there's a separation, like there's a group of elders, and then there's a subsection of elders who preach and teach. And that's not what Paul is referring to. What, what I'm saying is Paul is not saying that some elders don't have to teach. Because what we'll see when we get in, uh, further into chapter 3, actually next week we'll see this uh, in verse 2, that one of the qualifications of an elder is that they're able to teach. And the, the meaning behind that ability to teach, again, we'll explore this more next week, requires sound doctrine. So the teaching isn't just He's, he, he needs to be able to stand at the pulpit and preach to the people, or he has to lead a Bible study, and that would be, or, you know, like lead a life group or, or something like that. That could be an expression of his, of his ability to teach. And that ability doesn't have to be natural. It can be practiced and learned just as much as it can be a natural gifting. Uh, but still, uh, this man is, needs to be able to teach in any circumstance. So if somebody comes up to an elder and says, hey, this is what's going on in my life. I don't know what to do. Can you pray for me? And can you give me some wisdom? What should I do? And that elder is supposed to have sound doctrine under his belt that it enables him to provide wisdom according to scripture for that person's life. That's an expression of teaching. He's teaching that person how to deal with life and how to apply the doctrine of scripture to their life. And if that, and, and if you might be thinking, well, then I don't want to be an elder because I don't know if I always have the right thing to say to people at the right time. I've been an elder for a while. I can tell you there have been plenty of times where people have wanted me to give them wisdom, and I'm like, man, I don't know what to do here. Like on the spot, right there at the moment, I'm like, I'm not sure. So what do you do then in that situation? I'm supposed to be able to teach you. So I just say to people, I'm not sure what to do right now. I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you now, and then I'm going to keep praying for you. I'm going to talk to the other elders, and we're going to pray about it, and we're going to get into Scripture and figure out what, the wise, what is wise for you to, to do, and, and I'll, we'll be in contact with you. So, like, even not knowing what to do, you have an opportunity to display sound doctrine, patience, and wisdom with people. And so that's kind of like this, that's an opportunity to teach, and that's a requirement of all elders, so, number three, third task of an elder, they are to help the spiritually weak. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14, he says, we ask you, brothers, so he's talking to the whole congregation here, okay? We ask you, brothers, whole congregation, to respect those who labor among you. So now he's telling the congregation to respect the elders, right? 
We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul's talking to the whole body there and telling them how to interact with their shepherds who shepherd them. And then in verse 14, Paul shifts to the actual elders themselves and gives them direction. And he says, and we urge you, now he's talking about the elders, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol, encourage the faint-hearted. So these are the things the elders need to be doing in the congregation. Admonishing the idol, encouraging the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So this is the work of the shepherd. They are to go to the people and encourage them, admonish them, help them, just as a parent does with their children. So this is a very parental role in eldership. The elder is to view his role as that of filling God's role of father, in a sense. The elders are to realize that they are standing in for Jesus as the shepherd of their local body to the care of God's children, like a parent does for their children. So also an elder does for the church because the elder is a shepherd to the church. Scripture tells us that Jesus, 1 Peter chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 13, tells us that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, that he is the chief shepherd, and then we are called, elders in the church are called under-shepherds. We're, we're like micro-expressions of Jesus to the church, and that's what we're meant to be, to shepherd the church like Christ or as Christ or in Christ's place until he returns and rules over us all in a unique and different way than we experience now in the church. And so it is important that an elder understands that they are a shepherd, and that's what a parent is. Parents, your role with your children is shepherd. You shepherd your children. Because shepherds lead and love, they're patient, they guide, they discipline, they practice um, They practice. Scripture and prayer with their children. They lead them into the word. They, they practice the godly disciplines that are revealed to us in scripture. And so that's like the role of the parent to the child. And it's essentially what the pastor or the elder or the overseer does with the church. And we see this expressed by Paul. The text I just read you was 1 Thessalonians 5. Just a few chapters earlier in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7, we see Paul, verses 7 and verse 11, we see Paul kind of give this parental role to him and his fellow travelers, his other disciples, as they interact with the church. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. That is the mother-like role of the elders to the church. Then a few verses later, Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you 
and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And there you can see the fatherly role. So Paul cast these two different roles. Clearly, we all realize that a mother's role in the family and a father's role in the family are very different. And we know simply by nature, we say nature, really, by creation, the way God created us in nature, that women are unique from men and men are unique from women in their kind of general disposition, right? Men tend to be, well, we're certainly, I mean, biologically filled with certain hormones that make us more uh, uh, physical and make us more aggravated. That would be a negative uh, repercussion of those things, uh, but maybe more authoritative in their disposition and, and role, and, and he makes women uh, sweeter, I think would be a good word, um, more gentle, which, is, which makes perfect sense because a child who is a newborn baby needs the gentleness of his mother. Can you imagine newborn babies with dads, right? Throwing them in the air as high as they can constantly. And that child comes down and goes, I need mom. I need mom to hold me. I don't want to fly anymore, dad, right? And, and so children need both personalities, both dispositions, both mother and father to have, I think, the most successful opportunity to grow into Christ-likeness though that may not always be the case for children, and God prayerfully shows that child grace uh, when, he does not, when they do not have both mother and father. But what we see here from Paul is that the elders filling both roles. So the, these men who are to lead the church need to have not only, they have both of these roles. There's a gentleness and a compassion and an understanding uh, same thing that Paul tells the husbands in the way they live with their wives in an understanding way, so also the elders with the church. And, and then you've got the fatherly role where there's like discipline and, and there's uh, re, uh, uh, correction and exhortation and direction and guidance, and the elders are supposed to fulfill all of those roles for the people. And I can tell you from my experience, it's very difficult to balance both those things as a person, you know, and, and to do so. And this is why, and we'll get into the plurality of eldership here in a second, but this is why it's helpful to have more than one elder leading the church. So, number four, the fourth thing, the fourth task of an elder, they are to care for the church. As First Peter 5, 1 through 2 says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Here's the command. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This describes the intentional desire of the elder to truly care about his people because and i always struggle with this just so you know it's just something i think about um as a pastor i sometimes use the word my people you know and i i, I struggle with that because i think it's just just because of how i think it's perceived i think it's perceived as like a controlling statement that you're mine i control you that's not at all how i view it when I say my people, 
what I recognize that my role is to fulfill the role of Christ on earth during this time period for this church. You are Christ's people. So more accurate statement would be you're his people and he has given you to me to care for. Right? And so when I say my, I mean it in an affectionate way, like the way that a parent says, this is my child, or this is my friend, or this is my spouse, this is mine. I, I have, like, like uh, Drew is my friend. You wouldn't be like, he's not your friend, he's Jesus' friend. Like that, no one would be like, yeah, of course he's your friend. You're my people. And you can say, you're my pastor. Right? And it's, a, it's an affectionate, not an ownership, but an affection where that kind of wording comes from. And, and that is, to me, an expression of love that I want to willingly show you in accordance with Scripture. And then that care is expressed through these commands that Peter gives us here and the way that the elders operate and love the church. And then we get to the fifth point. The fifth task of the elder, and they are to appoint other leaders and other elders. As Paul tells us in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 14, he's talking to Timothy about how he got into this role, and he says, When the council of elders laid their hands on you, that was Timothy's appointment to lead the church. And it came from the council of elders who clearly approved of his role given that they laid hands on him. That's what that means. That laying on of hands is in a... It, biblically, it's a posture or an action that signifies agreement and calling and sending out. And so there's this approval from the elders. There was no church vote. There was just elder appointment. This is one of the texts that supports the idea of an elder-led church that does not seek the vote of the congregation, but follows God's appointed elders. Because in the entirety of the church body, if the entirety of the church body were mature and wise enough to make decisions for the church, then why, why would they need elders? But since Paul clearly tells us, which I already read for you, that churches have what he calls the weak in them, the burdened, those who lack understanding, and, and various other phrases from Scripture that describes the people that these elders are supposed to lead. And though those terms sound negative about the people, that's not the point. Paul's point is, hey, elders, recognize that in your church there are people who are struggling, there are people who are suffering, there are people who don't have sound doctrine, there are people who are spiritually weak, there's people who are unwise in your church, there are people who are not spiritually mature in Christ. So if that's true, let's just stop there and, and put that in a category. That's a category of people in the church. And then there's another category of people in the church, those who are spiritually wise, those who are knowledgeable in doctrine, sound in wisdom. Maybe they're older, maybe they're younger, irrelevant, but the point is they're filled with the Spirit, they know the Word of God, they, they, would, they would essentially, in some degree, even be qualified for leadership in the church, and if they were men, and, and also women who are wise and mature and sound in doctrine and knowledgeable. And so you've got in the church these very healthy, wise, mature godly people and then you also have in the church these people who aren't that yet and then in between you've got a whole spectrum of different kinds of people so why would scripture or why would the church i should say not scripture why would the church 
leadership go to the very people and ask those people who are unwise, not mature, maybe not even faithful. Not that they're bad, but maybe they just haven't matured to the maturity that we want to see them at yet. Why would the, congr- why would the leadership go to those people and say, you should make decisions for our church? You should guide us. You should decide. And the thing is, we look at these people who are mature and sound and wise, and we say, those people actually probably would be very helpful in making decisions for the church. But the problem is that those people are in the same category as these people of church member. And so to ask the wise church members to vote and not the wise church members to vote would be like, "Mm, you're not good enough, you don't get to vote, which we're not going to do because that would be totally rude and inappropriate and unbiblical. And so what we do is we offer the entire church the freedom and opportunity to vote, which means those who are unwise and spiritually immature and and maybe not faithful or just maybe young in the faith, maturing, getting there, um, they get to cast a vote for what is decided on things that are meant for church leadership to decide. Which is why I would make the argument that voting can be, not is, but can be unbiblical. And so, uh, why would we go to the people who are cast in terms of the way that scripture describes elders and the things that they do in those contexts as, as the verses that I've read for you already today you can see how Paul kind of displays the church or the body of Christ as a group of people who need direction who need guidance who need leadership who need elders who need sound doctrine who need discipline who need reproof who need correction who need encouragement who need exhortation they need those things why are those people deciding where we go and how we get there and what we're doing? That, it does, not, if, and if, it, that does not convey an idea that uh, the church has no voice. That is not what is being communicated in Scripture, that the church has no voice. But the idea of a vote enables the body who's supposed to be led by the church, it enables the body to be the leaders of the church. It's a congregationally led type of church. And the reality is in our church, that's what our constitution has. And uh, in certain situations, I'll just say this. There are uh, scenarios uh, that take place in church. And in those scenarios, our, uh, our guiding document, our church constitution, has direction for how certain things should operate. And as Brian and I have discussed as elders is if those directions within the Constitution are not biblical, we will not follow them, we will follow the Word. So this Constitution, I'll just say this about it because now I'm starting to cast doubt on you about our Constitution, the thing that we follow, but the reality is, if if anyone came up to you and said, by what guidance do you follow in the church, you wouldn't say the Constitution, you'd say what? The Word of God, right? And so... When I first got here, I noticed, I looked at our Constitution, I was like, ah, I'm not sure I totally agree with this thing in some areas. And I've been making um, c- corrections to them just privately. And there are things within the Constitution that are going to probably come up sometime, uh, maybe in the near future, I'm not quite sure, uh, where we need to make some adjustments in, in Constitution states that there needs to be a vote on those things and so on and so forth. But um, the reality is, that I will only adhere to what this says. And so the elders look at the word of God and uh, I don't 
I, I don't believe that there's heresy or you know false doctrine in the Constitution that would be like, oh, this is so erroneous, we need to get rid of it. But it, it, this Constitution existed before I got here, before any members in this church ever got here. And, uh, and so I just want to clarify for you that in our Constitution, there is this concept of voting that we have followed in order to be in line with the Constitution. But biblically, it's not supported because of what I just explained. It makes no sense for Paul to describe the body of Christ, the church, those who are being led by elders this particular way, and then to give those people the very decision-making power in the church. What then would be the role of the elder other than just to comfort those who are in need? And scripture is abundantly clear that, you know, like Paul says uh, in verse chapter 5, verse 17, the elders are to rule or lead the church, not follow the, not follow the vote of the church that would work against Paul's commands for what the elders look like. So that gives you an idea of, of what's like maybe a little insight into what's going on like Grace Church as, as Brian and I examine and making certain decisions or coming to you and communicating certain things that happen in the church that they're done according to scripture and that is our ultimate authority which we will submit to no matter what other type of authority tries to say otherwise. So the question then, in terms of all this and eldership, is how do we apply this to ourselves at Grace Church? Well, we have two elders. Uh, you could argue that we need more, and your elders would argue that we need more. In fact, that has been a point of prayer between Brian and I for the last few years. Uh, so here's an application. Pray. And I know a lot of you have been. Pray. Join us in praying that God would provide more elders for this church. And let me just say this. As long as I'm an elder, I will die on a hill. And that hill will be, I will never be okay with unqualified elders filling the role just to have elders. It's better to have not elders than unqualified elders. Just like I would say to a single mother, do not fill your, uh, your, what should be the husband's role or the father's role. You are the mother and the wife. That's your role to fill. Fill that role. And I have more wisdom on that that I think applies, but I'm not going to get into that because it's more of like a counseling situation. But still, just like I would say to a single mother, don't fill the father's role. Don't fill the husband-type role. So also, don't men... Or churches don't put men who aren't qualified into a role they're not qualified for. And so what I don't want to see is like 15 guys come up to me and go, can I be an elder? <laughs> like this is something, as we described earlier, this is why it's so important to know, is it a desire internally that you want to pursue externally? And do you meet these qualifications? And if so, be praying about that and pray uh, that the Spirit would lead you. And when I look at the role of elder, I think, what kind of man should be an elder? And I think, you know, like, listen, I've been preaching at this church for almost eight years. October 1st would be my eighth year here. And I've been saying over and over and over again for years, be in the Word, be in the Word, be in the Word, be in the Word, pray, be in the Word, pray, be in the Word, read the Bible, study the Bible, study the Bible, read the Bible, Pray more, read more, study more, be in the Bible more, 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 more. So, 
I would say that that will always hold true. More is always needed, right? You could always be in the word more. You could always be in prayer more. More, 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 more. Okay. But sometimes by saying do more kind of sounds like the message you're receiving is I'm not doing enough. And that's not the message I want to convey. And here's why. I look across this church and I think, what a beautiful and awesome reality that God has worked. Just, I'm just thinking about it from my perspective, almost eight years being here, how God has orchestrated and worked through this church in such a magnificent way to get to the point where, as a church, you are in the word more. Think about how, how many of you are at church on Sunday morning, you're a Bible study that Christian leads at 8.30 on Sunday morning, and you come to prayer at 9.30 on Sunday morning, then you sit through church on Sunday morning, and you serve the church, and then you go to Bible study on Wednesday night, and you go to your life group on Thursday night or Friday night, and you go to women's Bible study on Thursday night, and you go to men's Bible study Friday morning, and I look at someone like that, and I go, the guy, the man that I see in church, in prayer, in church, Bible study, life group, Bible study, I I look at that guy and I go, he's probably not only in the word at church, he's probably in the word at home too. Because he's the kind of guy who likes to be in the word with the body. So not only is that man probably in the word on his own, but he's in the word with the body of Christ regularly throughout the week. And then I look at that and I go, man, I've been preaching to this church for years. Be in the word, be in the word, be in the word. And I look across this church and I go, hey, good job. Like, and I don't want to praise you because all of you are like, don't you dare praise me. This is Jesus at work, right? Amen. Amen. Okay, good. Because I know you think that way. And so I, I, I just want to take a break from telling you, be in the word, be in the word, be in the word, and say, praise God that so many of you are in the word constantly and regularly. It's such, such a joy to me. And the kind of man that should fill the role of elders, a kind of man who loves to be at church, loves to be with the body, loves to be in the word with the body. He shows up at all these events, not because he has to, but because he loves the body of Christ, because he loves the church. He loves his friends and his family and his his elders and his pastor and the servants of the church and the children and the adults and the old people, whatever. doesn't matter. They love the body. They love the people. They want to be a part of the growth that happens when we're together. That's the kind of man that I want to see in eldership. And you know why that's also important? Because that man is getting Sunday, Sunday, Wednesday, Thursday or Friday, plus life group, at least five, if he's not in discipleship with me or Christian, at least six or seven maybe opportunities to be in the word regularly with the body outside of Sunday morning. Or I guess that seven would include Sunday morning. That man is going to grow spiritually. And that man is going to grow in sound doctrine. He's going to get the doctrine of the church because it's going to be conveyed and taught in all of these different scenarios. And that man will hopefully, Lord willing, if, that's, if, this, if this should be God's will, that kind of man will hopefully begin to grow into 
the role of elder. Like he will grow into the qualifications of eldership. He will, and when we look at these qualifications, he'll learn how to teach. He'll gain self-control. He'll be hospitable and not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. And he'll manage his household well and so on and so forth. And what happens is when all, the body of Christ is constantly involved in all of those things, we start to grow. And that growth what we all do together becomes this very fruitful and healthy and beautiful picture of the gospel and of who God is in Jesus Christ. The unity of the body that grows in being in the word and in prayer together constantly. All this stuff promotes such a healthy, vibrant life in the body of Christ. And that is what we want to see and that is why we want you involved. And so uh, it, it not only serves your personal benefit as a believer, but it serves the benefit of the church. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not involved in those things, to get involved in those things. And if you are involved in those things, maintain involvement in those things. Because here's what's going to happen. And, I, and I, I, if you're not involved in those things, I just want you to recognize that I'm, this is not picking on you. I just want you to see that this is a natural product. As those who are heavily involved in the constant attention to the word in the church, they will grow together. That group of people will come together be physically united in the sense that they're gathering in one place and they will grow spiritually together through the work of the word and the teaching of the word. And, and, and so as that group of people who are constantly in the word together in the church grow, there can be people in the church who do not participate in any of those things and their growth will be different. I'm not saying they won't grow. I'm just saying it'll be different. Chances are it'll be at a slower pace. Chances are it might be even be in a different direction because they're not in tune or in line or in the same path as the church that gathers together regularly. And so they'll grow in a different direction or they'll grow slower. And as those who are growing together as a church move at a faster pace and in a particular direction, these people either move at a slower pace or in a different direction. And the gap between those people becomes blaringly obvious. And it begins to make this group of people get a little maybe frustrated, and it makes this group of people uh, very satisfied in their own personal growth, but it makes, us, it makes us look back at these people and go, we want you to join us. We don't want you to go in this direction or to slow down. We want you to participate. And what happens is in this group of people where they're not with us in the word enough, uh, they'll hear a sermon on Sunday morning, and they'll and, and then the rest of the church is filled with the word and prayer of the body together constantly throughout the week, growing and learning, and, and, and they'll understand who they are in Christ, they'll understand who God is, they'll understand the intricacies of the gospel and, and the delicacies of different doctrines and how they relate to one another, and, and not only how they relate theologically, but how those theological truths and doctrines are intertwined within the application of our Christian living. All that stuff comes to light on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights and Friday mornings and Friday nights. And all that stuff happens when the church gathers, not just Sunday morning. So then if you come Sunday morning, you're completely absent, and you show up again the next Sunday morning, the church has already grown without you. And then you hear a message, and it's very frustrating, and it's very discouraging because you haven't grown with those who are hearing the same message and going, that's the message I need to hear. And so th this is why unity is such a massive, important part of preserving the purity of the church. Because if we're not united and the elders aren't leading that direction, and I say the elders are leading that direction because we offer you these opportunities, the elders aren't leading in that direction, then the church won't grow in that way. 
And as the elders lead and the people follow, we all grow together in that unique way. um, It's going to leave the people who aren't participating in those things feeling very discontent and frustrated, maybe annoyed, uh, maybe even to the point of being disruptive. And so it's it's, it's very unhealthy for the church to be divided that way. And so what happens is those who don't join start to become frustratingly divisive. Not always, but it can happen. And that divisiveness creates tension in the church, which ruins the purity and the picture of the gospel that is a gospel of unity. So it's really, I mean, this is an an aspect of the church that like Brian and I personally care very much about, that the body joins together and all of these applications of being in the word together. And I say all this to say to so many of you, Praise God that he is causing you and working in you to be involved in so many ways in the growth of this body by being in the word together as often as possible. And, and what I want you to understand is that if, if you feel like you're in, in this group of growing people who are fully participant and you, this in no way, shape, or form, and if you're growing, you shouldn't be thinking this way. In no way, shape, or form is this a, a pedestal to look down on others from. Because they aren't, or they're not, or they don't, or anything like that. This is, this is a, a growth in the right direction that, that comes back to people who are in different places and goes, Hey, I love you. I'm, I'm going this way. We're going this way as a body. You should come join us. Like This is totally worth it. Join us in this fellowship. Join us in the word. Be a part of this. We, we love you, and we want you to grow. So join us as we do these things. So that... That's an application of how the elders lead in this church. And as an elder in this church, this group over here, these men who are participating and growing together, that's the group of men we're looking at for eldership. So join us in praying that God would provide more elders for this church. And that that man, whoever it is, would be filled with the internal desire external fortitude given he meets the qualifications of elder laid out in the rest of chapter 3 and that we as a church would have a therefore by having another elder have a wider swath of godly leadership which will enable us as elders to better fulfill your needs as the body of Christ and so that as the body of Christ we would all in unity fulfill our unique ministries to the exaltation and glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. You are a blessing to us in ways that we can't even describe. You have called uh, men to lead your church and we submit these men to your leadership, these men that ought to be filled with the Spirit, united as one, leading your church, shepherding your church, guiding your church, loving your church, cherishing your church. Help us to do that in a way that brings you much glory. And pray, I pray, God, that you would raise up men who are qualified and that you would raise up men who, if they are not qualified in certain ways, that you would uh, transform them and sanctify them into qualification. And that there would be men in our church who desire the noble task of elder. Lord, we ultimately 
though we have men who lead the church on the ground, you are the senior pastor here, Jesus. You are the leader of this church. You are the shepherd. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. You are the chief shepherd. So let Brian and I simply be instruments of your leadership in a way that brings you much glory and that your people would trust you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope you guys have a great day.